Welcome to Scotch Friday Podcast. My name is Carmel Sacrin, and I'm your host. This podcast is part of our leadership series during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, death and dying. It's a dark topic, and yet it's a normal part of life. The pandemic has changed many aspects of how we conduct ourselves in our daily lives, including how we say goodbye to friends and family. We no longer freely congregate at church or funeral homes. Churches are closed to the public, and now there are legislative limits on the number of people who can attend a funeral service. So how does someone say goodbye to a loved one in today's environment? My special guest today is the best person I know who can speak on the subject of saying goodbye and how it is done in today's environment. His family name is synonymous with the charm and character of Burlington. He is a community leader who is highly regarded for many of his compassion and generous activities in Burlington. I have with me Mr. Don Smith of Smith's Funeral Homes. Don, welcome. Thank you, Carm. Glad to be with you this morning. Now, we have a lot to cover, and I'm going to keep it within 30 minutes. I'm going to try my best. But before we get started, I want to give our listeners some broad strokes on your background. You've been married to Wendy for 23 years. Between the two of you, there are four children, all of whom are successful in their own right. You are the owner and president of Smith's Funeral Homes, which has locations in Burlington, Grimsby, Stony Creek, and you're co-founder of the Canadian Cremation Services Hamilton. You're a lifetime resident of Burlington. You've attended Burlington Public and Central High School. You graduated from the Banting Institute at the University of Toronto in 1966. You have a profound belief of giving back to the community. You're past chairman of the Salvation Army Advisory Board, Hamilton Burlington. You're a member and a Paul Harris Fellow recipient of the Rotary Club of Burlington. You're a member of Wellington United Church. You are a 32-degree member of the Scottish Rite Hamilton and a former elder and lay preacher in the United Church of Canada. You're co-founder of both the Burlington Bereavement Resource Council and the Burlington Estate and Financial Planning Council. You've served five undefeated years as an alderman with the City of Burlington. In 1997, you received the Mayor's Community Service Award. You served on the Board of Governors for Joe Brandt. You co-chaired their 2000 to 2001 capital campaign for redevelopment of their emergency and cancer unit. In 2000, uh, the Burlington Chamber of Commerce recognized your funeral home as with the Community Service Award and Company of the Year Award. In 2008, the Halton Region Association of Fundraising Professionals bestowed on you Philanthropist of the Year. In 2009, the Burlington Community Foundation would not be undone, and they also awarded you with Philanthropist of the Year. 2010, you received the Humanitarian Award from the Ontario Funeral Service Association. In that same year, you received the YMCA Peace Medal, uh, your Peace Medal winner. Uh, Smith's Funeral Homes were the first Canadian funeral home to receive a Pursuit of Excellence recognition from the National Funeral Directors Association of the United States. Your passion for environmentally sustainable business practices led Smith's Funeral Homes to become the first Canadian funeral business certified by the Green Burial Council, which is an international not-for-profit organization. Now, I call this the slimmed-down version of your background. How'd I do? You did a good job, Carmel. I guess that ends the podcast. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> now, your history to Burlington is very long-standing. Your parents, uh, Wilbert and Kay Smith, settled here in 1938. And, yes. Uh, and, and I saw a great article about your family, which really gives a lot of details, a lot of interesting tidbits, which is a publication called Burlington Junction, uh, published by the Friends of Freeman Station. 
which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. And uh, you also commissioned a collection of stories, which you put into the form of a book titled Celebrating 75 Years of Burlington, which apparently anyone can pick up from uh, your funeral home. Is that correct? They're free. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it'll be coming out in a reprint probably next year, Carm. We're working on that now. So tell me, I mean, you and your brother, Doug, who recently passed, you grew up in Burlington. Tell me what it was like growing up in Burlington. Great community. Um, actually, um, it, it, was, it was a community, I mean, where we had our funeral home located on Brand Street. When mom and dad moved there in 1942, they, they were downtown, further downtown on Brand Street. That uh, Caroline Street and Brand Street was the outskirts of town. So that's what, that's what it was like. And you had to walk through apple orchards and, and market gardens and small farms to get to Central Public and Central High School. So it really was a small, very small community. The milk was delivered by horse and, uh, and wagon. And we put the, uh, the milk bottles out in the mor- or at night and then got fresh milk bottles in the morning. I mean, it was a small community and we knew everybody. So growing up in a family business is normal for many, but um, we're talking about a funeral parlor. What was it like growing up uh, as the son of the local undertaker? Well, I, I've not ever known anything except being above the funeral home. I, I mean, you kind of knew who your friends were because your real friends wouldn't be frightened of dropping over and spending some time with you. But mom and dad always made them feel um, welcome anyway. And there was always a bowl of soup and a sandwich for any of the kids that would drop over. And uh, it, it, was, it was normal. I think I was mentioning to you the other day that um, I remember one Saturday, remember the business was small and all along the back of our funeral home along John Street were all homes of kids our age that we grew up with. And one Saturday night, dad took the, pulled out the hearse and the limousine and, and let us have a dance with rock and roll music uh, in, in the garage. You know, so it, it, was, it was normal and people saw us, I hope they saw us as being normal. But it, it was a, a very serious time when we talked about funerals and, and death, especially for people that we knew. Now, you joined your father in the family business after you graduated in 1966. But when did you realize that was your calling? I, I never did realize it. My, I, 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 I guess um, I, I should have known. My great uncle and aunt were in funeral service, Carmel, in Chatham, Ontario, way back in the 1920s. And they more or less adopted my dad and my aunt, who were raised on a prairie farm in Saskatchewan. And so they, and then, so in 1938, my dad and my aunt came to Burlington. My dad married my mom, then my uncle came. So it's been in in the family that my great uncle and aunt, the Campbells, my dad, my aunt, my mom, my uncle, my brother, and myself. So dealing with death, dying, grief, and bereavement has been in our family for generations. And I'm so proud of the legacy that they left me. Um, In high school, which, as I said, it was kind of like a scrambled egg for me. um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But as soon as I decided to join dad in the business, everything came together. Everything was congruent and made a lot of sense. And like I said to my father and mother, I guess being raised above the funeral home for 25 years, I was like a computer. I was being programmed to be a funeral director, caregiver for people, and didn't really know it. So you use words uh, such as caregiver, but I also know you use words such as stewardship in your business. What does what do these words mean to you, and and why are they important in your business? Giving giving back, Carm. Um, for for my mom and dad, it was always about giving back, and it's interesting in these last few years. 
I miss them a lot and wish I could turn the clock back and talk to them about a number of things. But dad did so many things uh, to, behind the scenes, like driving lacrosse players and hockey players around, giving back to the community through the Lions Club, through his church charitable work. And when mom died, Doug and I came across a letter from the United Church Women where mom had, after the Second World War, had packed up used clothing and belongings to send from here in Canada over to China to war-ravaged China after the Second World War. And I found a letter of commendation that, but mom never talked about it and dad never talked about it. We just knew and understood that our role in life was to be thankful for the blessings that we had and to give back to people. So it was their role model that, that I saw, as well as the role model that I had from the people in our church. Now, I know you've spoken about this uh, in public, uh, your belief in tithing. Comment on that, please. Oh, I, I, you know, I, I, I believe in, we, like I've said before, Carmen, I believe in giving back. I believe that people, what I do with my, my tithing is I take 10% of whatever the government leaves me after taxes, whatever money I get from investments and uh, bonuses and anything else that's an income, I take 10% of that money and I give to charitable organizations. And I have, I can actually think I can maybe find the list. And I I divided the list up years ago and, and I give to arts and culture, civic, education, environment, health, human services, international needs, political needs, religious, sports and recreation, youth and aging. So I apportion that money based on the needs that are happening within the community. And I've done that all my life. And I got that from my, my, basically my church philosophy and my parents' philosophy of giving back. Now, at your gala reception, when you were awarded the uh, Philanthropist of the Year uh, by the Burlington Community Foundation, you were quoted as saying, and I quote here, a lot of great things require money, but all great projects begin with a great dream and a vision of caring and wanting to make a difference, end quote. Yeah, I mean, you should, that's what life should be all about. Making, we're only on here for what? Three score and 10 if we're lucky. We feel sad for people that don't make that three score and 10. But while we're here, we want to do what we can to make life better for someone else. Carmel, it's kind of like you and I know being Rotarians. It's service above self. And that can take many different forms. It can be volunteering your time, giving your ties, giving what you have, um, giving... Uh, whatever you can give to make a difference for people. Now, those that know you, uh, Don, know that you have an amazing sense of humor. And I have a question for you. <laughs> was, it, was it your idea to have Brent Butt, who is the creator and star of the hit TV show Corner Gas, entertain guests at your gala event? No, it wasn't, Carm. You're asking me something I've forgotten about. But no, they, they brought Brent along and, and, and I, I got a real kick out of him. It was actually nice to meet him and sit next to him. He's a human being like a lot of us, and he just has a wild, wicked sense of humor. And he's Canadian, too, which I think we have the Canadian kind of corny sense of humor that gets right down to grassroots. But you have a fun nature about you, and, and um, uh, I, I wanted to mention that you are, along with your good friend, Ebby Markwitzen, the two of you are adventurous. You've, and I'm just going to say you've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro uh, in Jera in Tanzania. You rafted headwaters of the Amazon River. You walked across the Serengeti with the Maasai tribesmen. You trekked to Mount Everest in Nepal. Uh, you crossed the Andes in Peru to Machu Picchu. Uh, you also uh, went uh, down the River Kwai in Thailand. You followed the steps of Genghis Khan in Mongolia. 
you tracked the Gobi Desert in Inner Mongolia, and you negotiated the Niger River and rode camels in, uh, to Timbuktu in the Sahara Desert in Malai. Yeah, and, yes, and yesterday, Wendy and I walked to Walker's Line and back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this, is, uh, this tells me that there's an edge about you. You, have, you are so compassionate with people, and yet you seem to demand the best of yourself physically, mentally, financially. Where does that come from? Why, why are you so hard on yourself? So demanding. Well, it, it, I mean, Ebby and I decided, I guess I, I worked those first years up until we were 40. And Ebby and I said, let's see the world and do something kind of interesting. And, and we did. And it was, it was adventuresome. And then you, you remember when you went with us on a mission trip. So it became less about adventure and more about going and making a difference in parts of the world that we'd never been before. And that's where Sierra Leone came. And you came with us. And where we, we went and we went to the orphanage, we went to the polio village, we went to shacks and we went to disadvantaged poor people, people that, we, people that had their arms and legs and hands cut off by machetes. You and I remember being with a pastor, praying at the bedside of a man that was dying in a shack, a two-room shack, um, in, a, in an area that most people would never ever get to in their life. But we did it. So it was an idea of how could we make our life more significant? How could we bring soccer balls from Canada, the love that Canadians bring, and take it to another part of the world that had nothing? Now, you know, fate would have it that you would live beyond your 20s. And um, I know of um, an incident in your 20s where you had a serious motor vehicle accident. Yeah. And I know it brings back uh, um, memories that uh, you probably don't want to remember. But I understand you caused, uh, because of the uh, it was a motor vehicle accident. I understand you hit a transformer, which uh, caused a blackout at Joe Brand Hospital. Is that about right? I think that's, I think that's the only time the lights went out in the, in the hospital, and the lights nearly went out with me. Um, I was living a kind of reckless life uh, at, at the time, living, I, I would say, with impunity and just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. It, it, it was freezing thaw and snow. I was driving way too fast. The car went off the road, took out a, a telephone pole, took out our, um, com uh, I guess, the electrical system at, at the hospital. The car nearly went over on top of me. I put my head halfway through the windshield, flew out of the car, had no right to be alive, Carmel. Well, it wasn't, it, it's clear it wasn't your time, nope. but uh, given your years of commitment to Joe Brand, is this a form of penance you keep giving back for turning well, off? Let, 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 let me tell you what I've told very few people. I was in hospital for about two weeks. I had over 300 stitches. They had to stitch the top of my ear back on and they had to stitch me all up. And I had terrible kidney and a con injuries and a concussion. Two weeks in hospital and the first words out of my mouth um, when I, I saw my mom come in, whoa, it's reminding me, I said, did I kill anybody? And I've rarely told that story to anybody, but that straightened me out. Well, I guess we all have indicators in life that show us the path. But I want to ask you, um, let's, let's come to today. Let's talk about leadership. Why, why is it important? Uh, why is good leadership important in today's pandemic environment? Well, a leader, I, a leader uh, is, is leadership today is probably everything. And I'm, I can say one thing. I'm proud, like a lot of people, to be a Canadian right now because we've had outstanding leadership, Carmel, at all the government, federal, provincial, and local levels. We've had leadership in the healthcare. I give Joe Brandt Hospital great 
uh, credit for their pandemic response unit they've created and businesses and the innovations of businesses, all that we as Canadians have done to handle this unprecedented time that any of us have experienced. But a lot of things, I think with, with me, a leadership or a leader is the sim symbol, I guess, or the soul of any group or organization. And I've talked about this before um, at Rotary Clubs and with different business people and my friends. I think what people need to do if they want to be a leader is to find out what their calling is. What's their, what's their purpose in life, Carm? And I think it's something that is sacred. It's spiritual. It's service above self, like we've talked about. It, it possesses timeless, limit, limitless values. For me, when I was at Scrambled Egg in my teen years, Grace Preston, who was the associate wife of the associate minister at our church, said to me one time when I was talking about ministry or what I would do with my life, she said to me, Don, you know, you could go down there on Branch Street with your father and have one of the best ministries and callings of your life. And that was the first person that ever equated work and spirituality. And so it kind of, I've never forgotten Grace Preston. It's kind of like Deepak Chopra who talked about dharma, you know, the Sanskrit meaning for finding what your purpose in life is about. And I guess what I guess the next thing is um, what a leader should try and do the best they can is to inspire to inspire others to find within their heart and soul what has meaning, what has purpose. And I'm not talking about motivation. I'm talking about something deeper. And if you want if you want examples, Jesus Christ, Buddha, Confucius, uh, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. So it's not motivation. It's something that's deeper. And, and the uh, Canadian author, Lance Secretin, said something like, in, in, if people want to read about it, in inspirational leadership. And the last thing I think about leadership is constant improvement. Good, better, best, and even becoming great. And it's not about the money. It's not about making dollars and cents. It's about making a difference in people's lives. And I think we've seen this in this pandemic, how people have come to the fore. We've talked about our politicians, about business leaders, about community leaders, about people in the healthcare system, about first responders. Um, Stephen Covey's written about that in The Seven Habits, and Jim Collins wrote about that in Built to Last and Good to Great. So there's, there's a lot of things. Find your calling, inspire others to find their calling, and uh, look for constant improvement to get better. Well, how do you, how do you um, I mean, we, anyone who's come into the doors of Smith's Funeral Homes knows that there's a culture that emanates from you. How do you, how do you make that transition to your people? How do you, your, your staff there are very conscious of, of what your, beliefs are and how you want them to carry their role how do you how do you pass that on how do you instill that in the people that the first thing make the up first thing, funeral homes yeah the first thing i try to do after i give people a handshake and a hug because most of the people i know is to tell them that although we can't fully understand we've been in your shoes before i think i've talked before about my brother's death you know raised all my life above the funeral home all 50 74 years of my life but in 2016, Jane and Doug's wife and I were by his side from five o'clock at night till seven o'clock, 7.35 to be exact, August 23rd of 2016. So all my life I'd been surrounded by death, but I'd never been with somebody when they died. So I was with, wasn't, isn't it so strange 
but maybe helpful to me and my people to be better caregivers that I happen to be there with Jane to uh, hold Doug's hand and to comfort him and to be with him as he died. You are uh, probably the only person I know that's been around so much death. How do you keep a positive uh, perspective on what you're doing and, and, um, we're, we're, we're there to help people, Carm there, but for the grace of God. And, and for a lot of us, we've been in their shoes. We're trying to understand how, how to, uh, to help them. And, and I guess it starts a lot with feeling. I know Maya Angelou, the American poet had a great saying that I remember. She said something like people will forget what you said. And people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And so what our, our business is really about how do you make people feel special, individual, cared about, needed. Um, we're there to help you, not just another number or another phone call. You're, you're somebody that we care about, and we get it. We understand where you're coming from. So the funeral business can be very impersonal at times. How do you keep it personal? We, we meet regularly with our team all the time. As a matter, well, of course, we meet daily. We're supporting each other. We have some terrible, awful situations. And we share with each other, I guess, we're, we're, it's kind of self-help. How can we best help this family? And we meet once a month and we talk about how can we do things better? How can we improve? Just like I said, how can we get to be the best at what we do? And then at the end of the meeting, we have what we call service success. And we have binders full of letters where people talk about how you made us feel, how you made mom look after we saw her ravaged by, by cancer, how you cared for us, how you were there when we needed you most, how your people understood how they met us in the parking lot, how, you know, like the list can go on and on. Um, and yeah. we, we share those positive things and we build on the positive because we get feedback from people about how we've been able to help and change their terrible experience. Now, there has been a change, a legislative change in funeral uh, practices on the number of people that can attend funerals. Can you, can you just discuss that a little bit? Give us some details as to what's yeah, going it, on. Yeah, it, 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 it's, re it's really been, first of all, I guess the, the first thing to say, Carm, is that we're, we're tribal people. We're, as John Dunn said, we're part of all the people we've ever met. So death touches us. It touches everybody, not just our family but people with whom we work with, the guys we play hockey with, the guys on the baseball team, the people at, um, that we are in community organizations with, volunteer with, whatever. And in this particular time, people have been, it's been really difficult because people have been robbed, of, as they say, say it, robbed about being able to say goodbye. Look at what we're hearing in, about deaths in nursing homes. And now the limits, uh, sorry, Don, the limits, I think, were originally down to 50 in, in a group and then down to 20 and 10. So, so is the limit now still at 10? Limits at 10. Actually, every, every limit is at 10 for just funeral service and funeral providers. The limit for congregating in any other in Ontario is five. Only five are allowed to congregate in so, one. But we can still have 10 at a, at a funeral. And we're able to do that. In, in series, so we, we can have a family come in with 10 of their family members, have them leave, disinfect, clean, take care of the facilities, have them and then wait and then have another 10 come back in. So we've, we've been able to accommodate people's needs and their need to grieve and say goodbye. And, and I think you have live streaming, is that correct? We're live streaming services and, and, and that's, been, that's been working well. 
And uh, so we're, we're doing whatever we can with these crazy, unusual, different circumstances to make people feel that we can accommodate their needs. We had, we had one interesting situation where it was a COVID death and uh, the family had had an opportunity by phone to say goodbye, but two of the grandsons wanted to come in and see their grandfather. So we were able to give them masks and gowns and um, shields and, and gloves and come in and write a little note to the grandfather and put it in his casket and have their time to say goodbye. So that's just one of several different things that we've been able to do to help during this difficult time to allow people their, their chance to say goodbye to somebody they love. So stepping back a little bit from your funeral business, what is the future going to look like for people after the pandemic? I, I have felt, I, I don't want to be de- depressing, but I think um, we need to look at what the future is going to look like. It's going to be a very, very different kind of future. Um, I'm, I'm, there's people that have gone through stress, sleeping without families present, lack of PPE. I mean, we've businesses that are going to, be, are going to go under. I think we're, we're going to have what I think is going to be an, a, an emotional pandemic where people's mental health, I mean, there's going to be a need for a lot of people to understand what it's like to lose a business, to lose a loved one, to not be able to have normal responses. So I, I think people are going to have to be really loving, caring, and understanding as we get through this, because it's been a real tough time, one that most of us alive have never experienced. What I thought's kind of interesting, during the Second World War, what it must have been like for those mothers and fathers that sent their sons away to war and they never came back. It's kind of similar to that. I have no idea how they would have dealt with that, but a lot of us are dealing with that now. So we're going to have to be ultra sensitive and ultra caring as we go forward with this because a lot of people have been hurt. Well, Don, uh, you know, there's so much more that we can discuss, but our, our time's up. And, uh, oh, no, there's one thing we forgot to talk about. What's that? How much you, am I getting paid for this? <laughs> Don't you usually start with negotiating something like that at the beginning? We'll work that out after the podcast. <laughs> okay. It's called My Way of Negotiating. Anyway. Okay. Uh, Don, thank you very, very much for your precious time, uh, for your leadership, for your, your um, caring, compassionate, uh, giving um, the example that you set for uh, everyone who comes into your presence and company is always commenting about um, the kind of person you are, and, and you are someone we all want to emulate in certain ways and, and in many ways. So, Don, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. And to our listeners, please remember to have your say and go to our comment section on the podcast website. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.